Now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I do not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all time with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we consider it together today. Well, if the scriptures are anything, they are comprehensive. You catch that from time to time. Maybe when you read the Old Testament and you remember God's dealing with Israel and how he gave them direction for what they were to eat and what they were uh, to wear and how they were to trim their beards and how they were to do just about everything. There was no area of life that was outside of God's influence and his authority. Even though those ceremonial things have passed away, you still find that comprehensiveness in the New Testament. You find it in Romans. You read 12 chapters of theology and, and blessing and forgiveness and prayer in the Holy Spirit, and there it is in chapter 13, a command to obey the governing authorities and make sure you pay your taxes. And you think, really, God cares even about my taxes. And yes, he does, actually. Everything is under his authority. His scripture, his word is incredibly comprehensive to give us direction for all of life, from, from birth to death, from worship to taxes and every relationship in between. The Lord wants his people to be equipped for every good work, and so he's given us his comprehensive word. You find that in places like Proverbs chapter 5. Even though the passage may be a little uncomfortable to read, you find it here, and you can read the words on the page. You know what's coming, and yet some of us held our breath and wondered, is he actually going to say that out loud? Even worse, is he going to preach about that? Is the pastor going to talk about adultery and desire and sexual fulfillment in marriage from the pulpit today? And yes, yes indeed I am. Of course, there are some people that wish that this sort of thing wasn't even in Scripture, that this is certainly not the sort of thing that we should read in public, not the sort of thing we should preach in our pulpits or teach to our children. In fact, uh, it makes some of us blush. It makes us wonder if we should dismiss the children for this week. Well, there's actually a great irony in our culture, and that is that our society is filled to the brim with sensuality. Everywhere we turn. You can't get away from it in the public sphere, even if you wanted to. 
uh, because everything from Doritos to uh, your new car is sold to you uh, with sex enclosed and trying to sell you a fantasy. And so sensuality is everywhere, and it's in the public sphere, it's in the advertisements, and the only voice that is consistently stifled on human sexuality is the voice of the God who made us. So the protesters stand outside of the state houses and the government buildings and they hold their signs telling us to keep our Bibles out of their bedrooms. And even if they don't want to hear it, they're acknowledging that God's Word actually does have something to say about the most intimate of human relationships. It does indeed. You find God's wisdom for these things in Genesis. You find it in Proverbs, you find it in the Song of Solomon, you find it in 1 Corinthians, in the Old and the New, all over the place. God is reminding us that the God who created man and woman is also the God who created the union between them. The Lord gave humanity intimacy as a gift. It was meant to be a blessing, but it was meant to be a blessing with boundaries. You see, sexual intimacy is the kind of thing that has an incredible power. It is able, uh, on the one hand, like a fire, to warm your house on a cold winter night, but it is also able to burn the whole thing to the ground, and the difference is whether that blessing stays in its appointed boundaries. And the foolishness of the dying world wants nothing to do with boundaries. They want nothing to do with God's truth. They want to replace it with the lie that says we get to make our own rules about human sexuality. We get to follow our own desires. We get to express these things in whatever way and with whomever and whenever we desire. In fact, the lie goes on to tell us that not only is sex without God's boundaries uh, more convenient, but it's also more enjoyable. Take a look at Proverbs uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. This is the lie in our culture regarding human sexuality. The woman folly is loud, she is seductive, and she knows nothing. Verse 15, she calls to those who pass by, who are going straight in their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here, and to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Here's the lie the world tells us. Human sexuality is actually better, more enjoyable, safer, without God's boundaries. And so you don't need to listen to God's wisdom for sexual purity. You don't need to listen to what He has to say. And that lie is everywhere around us, clamoring to be heard. So if we are wise, we will attend to what the Lord has to say about these things. Here's the way one commentator put it. He said, The Bible does not hide from or obscure the power of temptation to elicit sex. The language of this chapter is refreshingly clear and direct, without being crass, and if the church is to do its duty, it must be no less clear in its teachings. So with the Lord's help today, we are going to look at the lie that is being fed to us about human sexuality. We're going to deal with the devil's lies head on. We're going to hear God's wisdom for purity. Now, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. Uh, first, looking at the bait of sexual sin, and then the cost of sexual sin, and finally, the corrective for sexual sin. The bait, the cost, and the corrective. We begin with the bait of sexual sin, and it shows up in verses 3 and 4. It tells us, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. That's the classic trap, isn't it? There's a deadly snare 
and yet it's hidden. It's, it's cloaked with something that looks inviting, something that looks enticing. Now, in the case of this seductress, the bait comes in the form of flattery. It's smooth words. Empty promises whispered in your ear to silence the wisdom of God's word, to get you to, to, uh, to stop reflecting on God's boundaries and to go in, in a different way. Now, as we read, I, I want to say at the beginning, we need to do a little bit of extrapolation in this chapter. We need to take the principles here and apply it a little more broadly. Solomon, obviously, is writing wisdom for his sons. And so he speaks primarily about the seductress, about the, uh, the strange woman, he calls her. But in reality, sexual temptation comes to all kinds of people, and it comes from all kinds of places. Sexual temptation comes from men and from women. It comes, it comes to the young. It comes to the middle age. It even comes to the elders in various ways. And sexual temptation, sexual sin is no respecter of persons. And so we need to understand this a little more broadly, and that's why we need to be on guard against this bait, because it's all around you. You need to be able to recognize it for what it is. You need to be able to discern the lies and the false promises of sexual temptation for what they are. Now, my guess is that you probably already know what sexual temptation looks like. The focus here is on what sexual temptation sounds like. Now, what does sexual temptation sound like? What is the bait? Well, uh, we find an example in Proverbs chapter 7. Turn there with me. We're going to begin reading again at verse 13. It's an extended example of the lies that sexual temptation tells so that we can recognize them. Talking again of the seductress, of the immoral woman, Solomon says, verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. With bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. And he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. Verse 21 tells us, with much seductive speech, she persuades him, and with her smooth talk, she compels him. So what are the lies that sexual sin tells? What do we find in this example? Well, for one, sexual sin tells us the lie that, well, this is really about what you and what you can receive and not what I can get from you. You notice the language in chapter 7, verse 15, I have come to meet you. I've come to seek you, she says, to the man who just so happens to be walking by. I've found you, she says. This is about you. This isn't about what I can gain from you. And that's the very definition of flattery. Flattery is insincere praise when you really just want your own things, your own motives accomplished. And that's what's going on here. Sexual sin is always going to tell you what it thinks you want to hear in order to get what it wants from you. You see this happen all the time. Young women go off and they find some young man who treats them very nicely and makes wonderful promises. He tells her, no, I have your best interest in mind. I actually care for you. I'm going to be around for a very long time. I can provide for you, and this is what you want, isn't it? And as soon as the man gets what he wants, he's gone. He's found some other young lady, and he's telling her, no, this is about you. This is... This is what you want, isn't it? And it's the lie that sexual sin tells us, telling us that it's, 
It's really about you and not what it can get from you. Another lie that sexual sin tells us is in verses 16 and 17, and that is the lie that says this will be enjoyable. Notice the scene is set with all the best things, aloes, and cinnamon, and Egyptian linen, everything indulgent, everything enjoyable. Sexual temptation always promises the perfect experience. This is the lie that the pornography industry is selling us. That there are bright lights and people standing behind cameras and it's being peddled to people who are sitting uh, all alone and watching a fantasy that doesn't really exist. And it doesn't exist because the pornographers don't tell you about the rampant sex abuse and the drug abuse and about the the terrible depression, about the sky-high suicide rates among people who are in this profession, in this, this terrible industry. Last year, Market Watch termed them deaths of despair. But never mind all that, says temptation. You're going to enjoy this. This is going to be wonderful. We have aloes and cinnamon and the best linen. And sexual temptation tells us this will be enjoyable. Sexual temptation also tells us there will be no consequences. Notice the religious language in verse 14. I paid my sacrifices. I had to offer vows. This is the lie of legalism. So long as you you take care of the ceremonial aspects of your religion, so long as you have your own own God thing figured out, you can do whatever you want with whomever you want, and those things uh, are are distant planets in uh, in orbits that never bump into one another. They, They don't have to coincide. God doesn't care what you do on Friday night so long as you're in church on Sunday morning, so long as you're volunteering with the youth group, so long as you're leading that Bible study, you can do whatever you want. There will be no consequences. Nobody really cares about this. It's a small thing, says sexual temptation. And the last lie, nobody will find out. Verse 19, my husband's not at home. Nobody has to know about this, says sexual sin. It tells you you can go to that place. You can exchange those pictures. You can be with that person. Nobody has to know. There will be no heartache, there will be no regret, there will be no jealousy, there will be no divorce, there will be no custody arguments, there will be no, uh, no abortions, there will be no unplanned pregnancies, there will be no heartache, no diseases, no church discipline, there will be no complications because nobody will ever find out, says sexual sin. Nobody has to know. And actually there, there are a whole host of other lies that sexual sin tells us and we could think of many more for ourselves if we were to think about them, but it actually is, they're all just variations on a theme. It's the same lie that's been told over and over again for thousands of years. It's the lie that begins with a question. Has God really said? You will not surely die. No, 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 no. You can do this, and nobody's going to know, and even if they did, nobody's going to care. And that's the lie that we're being fed. The lie that says the Lord has withheld from you something good, something enjoyable, something that, quite frankly, you deserve, don't you? God must not be caring for you. It's a lie that says you would be wise to ignore God's boundaries, to go in your own way. The temptation comes on lips that are as sweet as honey and in words that are smooth as oil. Just like every bait, there is a hook hidden somewhere underneath. In fact, that's a pretty good analogy for how this works. 
I realize that in fishing, and I don't mean to offend any fishermen here, in fishing there is a great deal of skill involved. If you're going to find the right fish in the right place with the right bait, there are techniques, there are grand mysteries that I can't begin to know, but even at the highest levels of the sport, the entire premise of fishing is that you're trusting that fish are stupid. At least that they are hungrier than they are intelligent. And all you have to do to catch them is put the hook in something that they desire, and once they bite, they're as good as dinner. This is how sexual temptation works. It's built on the assumption that you are dumb, that you don't see the danger that lies before you because all you can see is that thing that looks enjoyable to you. And it's presented to you in the best packaging. Words like honey and oil. It says in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. There's actually a play on words happening in those verses. If you were a Hebrew and you wanted to uh, write out, you wanted to talk about a double-edged sword, literally what you would say is a sword of two mouths, not two edges. You would say it's a sword of two mouths, and the idea is uh, a sword has a mouth because a sword is something that devours. It consumes. It gets taken to the battlefield, and it cuts down men in the prime of their life, and it, it removes their hope and their joy and all of their future plans and the sword makes a meal out of men, and so does sexual temptation out of men and women. It devours. It begins as smooth as oil, but in the end, it's like a double-edged sword waiting to gobble you up. And so, dear friends, be on guard against the bait of sexual sin. It's a lie that will tell you all it thinks you want to hear so that it can get everything from you. Verse 8 tells us, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. That brings us to our second point. If the end of these things is bitter, what's so bitter about it? What is the cost of sexual sin? What is on the line if you get snared by these things? Well, we could say that sexual sin could cost you everything. It could cost you your honor. It could cost you your life. It could cost you your salvation. Solomon makes that very clear in a couple ways. He tells us first about the immediate cost of sexual sin in verses 9 and 10. He says, keep your way far from here, her, excuse me, keep your way far from her, lest you give your honor to others, verse 9, and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. There's some debate here about what exactly Solomon means. Who does he have in mind? Uh, when he talks about the merciless person who eats up your years and your labor and, and all of your best things, the best years of your life in a sense, everything that you work for, who is the merciless one? And some people say, well, maybe it's the judge. Uh, the, the penalty actually in Israel for adultery is death. It seems like pretty rarely was that actually uh, put into play. More often, the person would be caused to pay a fine, a hefty fine, one that was so hefty because the man who had been wronged, uh, whose wife had been uh, taken advantage of, he was able to set the fine at whatever he wanted. You deserve death, said the law, and so he could basically exact whatever penalty he wanted, and you could be a slave for the rest of your life and could be given over to him. Maybe that's the merciless one here. Maybe it's the person who does find out what nobody was supposed to find out. It becomes a, a point of blackmail point of having something over on you. I, I know your secrets, in a sense. 
maybe it's the woman herself. And she's caught the man, and now uh, she treats him like a slave, and, and she can take what she wants for herself, and she's merciless. And it's hard to know exactly what he's talking about here. Maybe the best way to describe uh, the immediate loss of sexual sin is to use the old Facebook status. It's been a few years since I've checked, but, but last I saw, when you set up your Facebook status, you could announce your relationship status to the world, and you could tell the world one of just a few things in the beginning. You were either uh, in a relationship, or you were single, or everybody's favorite, it's complicated. That was a summary. It's complicated. I, I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. It seems like a silly thing, but that's a good way to explain this, because it's amazing how complicated sexual sin makes everything. Anytime these things happen outside the bounds of God's ordained place for these things, which is a lifelong monogamous heterosexual marriage. That's the only arena God gives for the exercise of these things. But when, when the fire gets outside of that fireplace, in a sense, it, it becomes incredibly complicated. You don't have to search very, very hard to find news stories about affairs that end in a murderous rage because one person was played for a fool. You don't have to look very hard among your neighbors or, or your circle of friends, perhaps, to find somebody whose entire life was ruined, their entire bank account was cleaned out because there was a lover who promised wonderful things and then left and lured them in and took them for everything. You don't have to look far in your family to see the kind of drama and the heartache that happens when children are dragged through the legal system. And parents are arguing on both sides about child support and weekend custody and where they're going to spend this Christmas or that Christmas and who gets to live in this house and who has to find a new one. And see, there are some sins that fire like a rifle shot and it goes in a single direction and the effects are pretty limited. They're devastating, but they're pretty limited. You can lie to one person and that effect is, is pretty contained. You can steal from one household and the effect is pretty contained. But sexual sin, when these things go sour, it's like a hand grenade exploding in a crowded room. And the more relationships, the more people, the more children are involved, the more it, it, it messes with families, the, the worse the collateral damage is when all the smoke clears. It gets pretty complicated pretty quick. And there's loss and there is a cost to these things. These are the kinds of sins that can destroy families and can leave people feeling used and less than worthless. And so you need to know there's an immediate cost for sexual sin. And then Solomon points out that there's a delayed cost. Notice the tone of regret in verses 11 and 12. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline. Oh, how my heart despised reproof. We typically classify sexual sins as the sins of youth. Generally, that's true. But it has to do with more than just body chemistry and, and hormones. It also has to do with the kind of long-range perspective that age can give you on what's really important in life and what the good life is all about. Solomon here is urging us to consider temptation from that vantage point. What will, what will the things that look so alluring to you now look like from the twilight of your life? How will you want to be remembered? What is the legacy that you want to leave behind for your family? I find it ironic uh, that Solomon's legacy centered on three aspects of his kingship. Solomon was the wisest king who ever lived, the Bible tells us. 
He wrote Proverbs for his sons. He taught them the way of wisdom. He, he rendered uh, justice in the court system. He was a wise king. That was one thing that he was known for. He was also known for being the king who built the temple. His father had left him a, a, a kingdom at peace, full of bounty, full of riches, full of skilled labor, expanding its borders. And Solomon made use of all those things to serve the Lord, and he built the most magnificent temple that Israel had ever seen. A temple so wonderful that when the, uh, the replacement was built, the old men who had seen the original wept at the sight of it because it couldn't compare to the temple that Solomon built. That was his legacy. It was Solomon's temple. Of course, the third aspect of Solomon's legacy is his incredible appetite for sexual sin. Solomon multiplied wives and concubines until his partners numbered a thousand women. And because of his insatiable appetite, because of the idolatry that went along with his adultery, it was Solomon's sin that brought the golden age of Israel to its knees. Who is the last king of a unified Israelite nation? Solomon the insatiable. Solomon the wise man. Solomon the one who would not be told no. Solomon who took more and more for himself. And so the kingdom was split into two limping nations until the pagans finally picked them both off. That was his legacy. So I wonder what his regrets were at the end of his life. I wonder if Solomon at some point late in life hung his head in his hands and he said, I wish I'd had 25 more wives. That would have been the number. 1,025 would have been good. I wish I had taken more time to enjoy myself. I wish I hadn't been so prudish all my life. You think that's what he regretted? Or do you think that Solomon wrote Proverbs 5 somewhere near the end? And he wrote it with the perspective of wisdom and regret and age on his shoulders. And he thought, if only I had listened to wisdom. If only I had listened to the people telling me no. Folks, you're not a king. <laughs> you won't have a legacy like Solomon's, no matter what you do with it. But let me tell you, you will never regret walking in the way of wisdom at the end of your life. You will never regret being true to your spouse. You will never regret giving your children a family name that does not have scandal written all over it. And so there is a delayed cost for sexual sin. There is also an eternal cost. And here we, we have to jump to the end of this chapter. We learn that even if the unthinkable could happen, even if your indiscretions could escape the notice of everyone else, even if you could be the only person who had that affair and no one knew, even if your temptation and your sin deals with two consenting, clear-minded adults, verse 21 tells us that a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. Solomon's telling us that you can't actually calculate the real cost of sexual sin if you are not factoring in the God who sees what men try to hide. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that it is appointed unto all men once to die and then to face the judgment of God. And we need to know that when divine judgment is rendered, there will be no, uh, no exclusion clauses for sins that were committed under extenuating circumstances. The Lord will not look on the last day on sins committed over here and say, well, you know, you actually were under a lot of stress at work, so we'll, 
we'll let that one slide. You, you needed a little bit of self-care. You needed something for yourself. And so, really, that's not such a big deal. And he's not going to look at sins over on the other side and say, I used to be against that. You know, the times have changed. We're all so much more enlightened now, aren't we? We know that that's not really what I told you it was so many years ago. God is not going to do that. It tells us that the Lord ponders all of a man's paths. And you notice from the footnote in the ESV that the translators don't know what to do with this word ponder. Take a look at it if you've got the ESV before you. It says another translation would be makes level. That's a, a more literal rendering of this word. But the context is clear that when it's talking about God making level the paths of his people, he's not correcting them. He's not saying, no, 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 this way, this way. This is an evaluation. This is an examination at the end of days. This is divine judgment language, and God judges his people on the level. He doesn't let some things slide and other things get by. The Lord judges with perfect judgment. He sees all that men try to hide. Solomon is giving us a prelude to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be deceived, says Paul. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's God's level. He sees and he judges with perfect judgment. He warns us in Malachi that he will be a swift witness against the adulterer. He tells us in Revelation that nothing unclean will ever enter his kingdom. Dear friends, count the eternal cost of sexual sin. It's true that there is forgiveness in Christ. It's true that there is cleansing for the most vile offender of any sin. Murderers and rapists and all those who will truly turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And that means that at the final day, at the table set before the Lord and the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be real, repentant adulterers sitting at that table. Repentant fornicators sitting at that table. Repentant homosexuals sitting at that table. There is cleansing for these things in Jesus Christ. He is the one who can forgive the sins of the flesh. But the scriptures warn us that those who give themselves repeatedly unrepentedly to perversion and sexual sin will have no place among God's people. Dear friends, count the cost. Do not be like Esau. He saw something he wanted right away and he sold his birthright. Flee sexual immorality. This is what Paul tells us. Now we've seen the bait of sexual sin. We've seen the cost of it, and that leads to our final point, the corrective for sexual sin. The corrective for sexual sin. Now, it might take some of the magic out of listening to a sermon. But you need to know that sermons are developed. They don't just appear ex nihilo. And so an earlier version, I'm sure you knew that. You didn't think too highly of me. An earlier version of my outline this week, actually I had used the word cure for this last point, and I liked it because there was a parallelism, there's a certain cadence. We're going to see the bait, the cost, and the cure. It was nice. I liked it. But, but actually I had to change that because it didn't fit. What we see in, in the verses that remain, beginning in verse 15, actually isn't the cure. It is a corrective. 
It is a corrective, but it's, it's not the cure. You see that, that Solomon is beginning to use positive reinforcement to teach his sons the way of purity. You know the old statement. The best defense is a good offense. This is what Solomon is telling his kids in, in really delicate language. He's talking about the joy of intimacy within a marriage. He says it's a fountain that refreshes and blesses the home. It's a source of pleasure. It is something that's almost like an inebriation. There's this beautiful picture of husbands and wives enjoying each other's bodies. And that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing in married couples. Enjoying one another's love. Solomon's approaching the whole topic from the other side. He's showing us the Lord actually is not some killjoy. The Lord is not some spoil sport who wants you to sit around and just see the things that you can't have. The Lord wants to provide for the enjoyment of his people. He wants his people to be satisfied, to be mesmerized with the joy of being known by another person. And so my first attempt was to frame these verses as the cure for sexual sin. But the reality is that nothing so superficial as marital intimacy can be the cure for something as deep and as foundational as human sin, no matter what kind of sin it is. I'm not, I'm not saying that marital intimacy is just some superficial thing. No, it's a, it's a profound thing. It's a, it's a deep mystery. It, it's, it's, well, um, one old dead preacher said, uh, conjugal love is chief among the earthly goods and mercy granted by God to his fallen and rebellious creature. Marital intimacy is a powerful thing, chief among uh, the goods and mercy, he says. It's a wonderful thing, yet compared to the depth of sin, compared to temptation, it, it merely scratches the surface. You know this, actually, if you're married. <laughs> you know this if, if you weren't married and you thought that marriage was going to fix all of your temptations and maybe one day I'll get married and then I won't have to deal with these things that plague me and I'll, it'll all be taken care of. Or maybe you're not married and you've never been married and, and you wonder if maybe... The stuff that Solomon's talking about here, the uh, intimacy in its rightful place, maybe that would have been the silver bullet to cure all of your temptations, but it, it's not. It can't be. It doesn't, it doesn't get that deep. Marital intimacy isn't the cure for your sexual sin, like it can't be the cure for the sin of gossip or the cure for hateful prejudice or, or the cure for for any of the sins that you deal with, or gluttony, or judgmentalism, because the root of all these sins go far deeper than human intimacy can touch. You see, these sins all come from the heart, actually. That's, that's the danger. Not just that the lie is out there, not just that it is presented to our eyes and to our senses, but the lie is in here. The lie begins in that uh, that twisted nature that we've inherited from our first rebellious parents, it's, it's far deeper. It goes to the core of our identity, who we are now as fallen creatures, and, and human intimacy can't get that deep. It can never change us. It can never define us from the inside out. And actually, here is another area where our culture gets human sexuality completely wrong. Maybe you've noticed the competing narrative in the world. We are told on the one hand that actually sexuality is not much of a big thing at all. That's the line that we use when we want to excuse things that we want to get involved in. It's just a biological thing. It's like hunger. It's, it's like eating. It's like breathing. It's just a biological process, and, and it's not a big thing at all. It shouldn't matter who or how or when you decide to give expression to your desires, because it's, it's nothing. 
But then on the other hand, we're told actually it's everything. <laughs> who, you, who you desire actually is everything about you and it puts you in a different category and that's your identity, isn't it? And what you want to do and how you want to express and we're told these competing things that it's nothing and it's everything. Well, the, the scriptures don't go with either of those lies. The scripture never says, oh yes, uh, human sexuality is everything. In fact, that was a, a radical idea in the early ages of the church. Here you had Paul coming along, a man with no wife, and he starts to tell people, you know, I wish everybody was as I am. Really? In a culture where the be-all, end-all was, how can you marry and have kids and perpetuate your line? Paul came along and he said, people who never marry actually have as much dignity and as much worth in God's kingdom as the people who can die surrounded by 26 grandchildren. The Bible never says that human sexuality is everything, but it also never says that human sexuality is nothing. Certainly not the way the culture treats it, like an old t-shirt that we can put on and we can take off. We can put in whatever drawer we want so long as we can find it when we want to get it out. Well, the scriptures teach us that sexuality is a profound thing, even though it isn't everything. So as wonderful as as married intimacy can be, it can't be the cure for your sexual sin or for your temptation. The cure for our sin has to go deeper than that. It has to be found in a new heart. It has to be found in a new identity. The cure for our sin is Christ and the new creation that He works in His people by His Holy Spirit. And so if you are young or you are old, whether you are married or unmarried, whether you may never marry, you need to know that nothing that this world has to offer, not even marriage and everything that comes along with it, as wonderful as it is, nothing that this world has to offer will be the cure for your sin. Only Christ can make you whole and give you an identity in Him. Now, marital intimacy isn't the cure for our sin, but it is a powerful corrective. And that's what Solomon's getting at here. Verses 15 to 19, the primary metaphor that he uses is the way that clean, clear water uh, provides refreshment and joy, excitement almost. There's also an idea of abundance in these verses. It talks in verse 15 of marital intimacy in the figure of drinking water from your own cistern and flowing water from your own well. Well, if you lived in the Middle East, you had a cistern. Every house had a cistern. It was a holding tank, really, and, and when you built your house, you would dig underneath the house into the rock that was underneath, and it would be a holding tank to collect rainwater. It's a convenience for the family. It was your own cistern that you had, and, and there the water stayed cool outside of the sun of, of the Middle East. Very few families had a well, though. Normally, the women would have to go out into the town center because wells were such a luxury, such a wonderful thing that, that everybody had to share them, and and Solomon's saying, no, it, marital intimacy actually is like having your own well fed by fresh springs of water. So the water's never stagnant, so it, it gets better the more you drink it, and it always overflows. That's the picture that he's giving us here. It's a picture of sexual intimacy within the bounds of Christian marriage. And we need to remember that the Lord is the one who created marriage. And God created marriage for children, yes. He created marriage for building up society. He even created marriage to be a picture of the sacrifice of Christ for the church, but the Lord also created marriage for enjoyment. So that a man and a woman could know what it is to experience intimacy and fulfillment 
and a romance that gets better with time rather than worse. And so Solomon's calling us, if we're married, to cultivate wonderful intimacy in our marriage. He's calling us to be so devoted physically, intimately to our spouses that the temptations that are out there can't begin to hold a candle to what the Lord has already provided for us. Charles Bridges summarizes this in the way that that only a Victorian-era British pastor could. He says, tender, well-regulated domestic affection. I love that phrase. Tender, well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passions. Folks, marital intimacy is a powerful corrective to sexual sin. I'm going to leave the rest of the exposition of these verses to the husbands and wives in our congregation to work out on your own. But the picture is very clear. God has provided a means for husbands and wives to find enjoyment, to find pleasure, not not to sit there and say, oh, what, what can't we have, but to rejoice in the one the Lord has given you. That's why Paul instructed uh, those in Corinth who were struggling with temptation to marry rather than to burn. And he told those uh, husbands and wives to see that they didn't deprive one another of their marital rights. And it's why even in Scripture, in, in a book that's read publicly before congregations and preached with children present, even the idea of sexual intimacy finds a voice. Because the Lord has given us wisdom for every area of our life. He created marital intimacy to be a blessing rather than a curse, and He calls us to be wise, to walk with Him in purity and in holiness with our spouses. May the Lord give us grace and wisdom to do just that. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left any area of our lives uh, to our own discretion. You've taught us and you lead us. You direct us in the way that we ought to go. And so we pray for strong marriages in our church. Sexuality isn't the only aspect of a marriage. We pray that those marriages that are present would be rich in this area so that we would be kept from the snares of the evil one, we pray for those who are struggling with temptation and are not married, that they would receive uh, a means, O oh Lord, for preventing of uncleanness, for, for finding enjoyment. We pray that you would not allow us uh, to buy into the lie of the world that sexuality is everything or that it's nothing, but help us to find in Christ all the fulfillment we, le- we need for life and godliness and to rejoice with the spouse that you've given us. Oh, Lord, would you do that and make us content and make us wise and holy to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.